When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to If Then, the show about how technology is changing our lives and our future. I'm April Glazer. And I'm Will Oremus. Welcome to If Then. We're coming to you from Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. We're recording this on the afternoon of Tuesday, August 7th. On today's show, we'll talk about why a bunch of the big tech platforms, Facebook, YouTube, Apple, are suddenly banning the far-right conspiracy theorist Alex Jones and his media empire, InfoWars. Then we'll discuss how Wells Fargo admitted in a filing last week that it wrongfully foreclosed on hundreds of people's homes, and it's blaming a computer glitch. Later, we'll be joined by Will Summer, reporter with The Daily Beast, who has been following the Q conspiracy theory closely for months. He'll help us understand how this fringe thinking tumbled onto the mainstream from the darkest corners of the internet, what the theory claims, and whether or not this is something that could spiral out of control. How did we get from Pizzagate to here? I have no idea, but I'm excited to find out. And lastly, we will have Don't Close My Tabs, some of the most interesting stories we found online this week. Okay, Will. So you have moved. You've changed coasts on me. Uh, How's it going? You're in Delaware now, right? I'm in Newark, Delaware. I'm at a really cool little startup studio here on Main Street in downtown Newark. And I'm excited to be here. Yeah, it looks cool. The move's going okay. Stressful as it could be, I guess. It is very stressful. And how about you? How, are you <laughs> are you close enough to those giant wildfires to be to be feeling the effects in the East Bay? I'm not feeling the effects in the East Bay, but uh, it's such a massive fire that if you're in California long enough, you know the fire somehow touches your life. And so, you know, I have friends and community that are up north that way and have you know helped with people uh, finding shelter for their animals and stuff like that. But I personally have not been affected. Uh, my heart goes out. The fires are raging now. The largest fire in the history of California is the Mendocino complex. So definitely keeping an eye on that. Meanwhile, on our beat in the tech scene, there has been no shortage of drama, uh, mostly this week, uh, with Alex Jones. Surprise again. <laughs> One of uh, this, this kind of figure that, that seems to court so much drama his way. On Monday, he was deplatformed, I guess we could say, right? Everybody started kicking him off. Yeah, so, so Jones, for those who are blessedly not familiar with him, uh, is the far-right conspiracy theorist, uh, the head of InfoWars. He has a presence on YouTube, Facebook, uh, Twitter. In fact, he had a presence on sites that I didn't even know he had a presence on that have now banned him. But it all started Sunday night, I believe, right, April, with with Apple they took down his podcast from the from the Apple Podcast app. Yeah, and actually started a bit earlier with with Stitcher, who who took down its podcast first. That's another podcasting platform. Apple followed suit and removed five of the six InfoWars podcasts from its app. 
that was a very bold move because previously all that had been done were like a few episodes had been taken down here and there. Spotify had taken down some particular episodes that were hateful from its platform, from its podcasting platform. Uh, Facebook had taken down four videos of Alex Jones, given him a temporary 30-day suspension. YouTube took down four videos of Alex Jones, gave him a 90-day suspension on live broadcasting. So we had seen these kinds of like piecemeal attempts to kind of rein in his videos and, and his media output that does forward harmful conspiracy theories. But it wasn't until Sunday evening that Apple said, you know what, we're just going to take not just your episodes, but your show off our podcast app completely, or at least five of the six shows that he runs. Right. So you might be wondering why now. I mean, this is a guy who years ago led a conspiracy theory saying that the survivors of the Sandy Hook school shooting were were uh, crisis actors or that it was a, a some sort of false flag uh, thing that was staged and didn't really happen. Um, it, he did it again with the Parkland school shooting. He, he said that the students who were survivors who were on TV talking about the trauma they had just been through were crisis actors and they were faking it. And it was all a plot uh, to by liberals to get gun control rammed through Congress. Um, it's not like he's been doing anything worse in the past week, I, I don't think, uh, than, he, than he always has been. But it came up a few weeks ago when Facebook held this meeting with reporters in New York and just somebody asked them, Oliver Darcy, a reporter from CNN, asked, "Why? hey, look, you're holding this meeting to tell us about your efforts to rein in misinformation and fake news, but you're still giving a huge voice to this guy, Alex Jones, who's out there, you know, spreading this, this gross stuff. And Facebook couldn't explain. They couldn't defend themselves as to why that was. And then the controversy just went on and on until finally this week, basically all the major platforms except Twitter uh, have dropped Jones, but April, you've done some reporting on like why this is an issue, or why there's why this is uh, a, a problem, or why some people might think it's a problem that they're dropping Alex Jones. Yeah, and to be clear, you know the Facebook channel that Alex Jones had with you know an Infowars that was branded as a news channel, right? It was a verified news channel. So, and this is kind of part of the leveling effect that Facebook has, right? It's like something that is you know blatantly false information gets presented within the same context. With the same framing, with the same kind of graphic design around it that a New York Times, you know, story would have. So Facebook on Monday finally decided after years of Alex Jones, you know, using Facebook to promote and forward his his, you know, far ranging conspiracy theories that have led to real world harm to finally kick him off. And it's interesting that they decided, you know, right after Apple did it, it kind of, you know, gave app like I think Apple gave Facebook the cover to do what they should have done years ago. Facebook said that they were uh, enacting or taking action based on their community moderation policies that ban harmful speech or hate speech on the platform. But Facebook has had these policies on their books for years and is deciding to take action now, now that they're, you know, in the public spotlight for giving Jones this big platform for so long. Uh, YouTube as well has had these policies on the books for years that they're now exercising now. And, you know, if they had exercised these policies more consistently uh, when people have long been reporting Jones for forwarding, uh, you know, very dangerous conspiracy theories that do become quite popular, then I, I think that this wouldn't be, you know, as dramatic a turn as it is now. But since all of the powerful internet companies in Silicon Valley, not all, but, you know, most that have uh, some sort of social media platform like Apple with its podcasts, 
Facebook and YouTube all decided at once to ban Jones, it made it look like this kind of like liberal cabal <laughs> of, uh, of kind of left-wing Silicon Valley internet companies all ganging up and deciding to kick, you know, the internet's most famous conspiracy theorist off the platform. That is probably going to... Uh, harden the beliefs of those who already distrust the media and believe that Alex Jones is being uh, unfairly censored. And in fact, Alex Jones did go straight to his website and to Twitter and start to claim that, you know, he is being censored, that he is being unfairly deplatformed, that there needs to be antitrust busting of these companies who can all act in unison to effectively kind of kick him off the mainstream internet. Uh, and so, you know, this is what happens when they all decide to kind of act in unison instead of actually applying the policies they've already had, you know, as incidents come up. Yeah. And Jones, I mean, his his whole shtick is that he makes everything seem like a, a dangerous conspiracy. And so when all the tech platforms at once decide to kick him off for no apparent reason, I mean, he wasn't doing anything different than before, it does look like a conspiracy. And now he's going to try to get uh, Donald, he's calling for Donald Trump to make censorship a big issue in the midterm elections. And uh, he's calling on, let's see, Senator Ted Cruz, uh, who we've talked about on the show, who who has uh, a, a sort of a campaign uh, against censorship of conservative views on social media, is jumping to Jones's defense. And so now the, the social media companies had been getting it for the, from the left for keeping Jones on their platforms. Now they're about to start getting it from the right for supposedly censoring him or squelching his you know free speech. And as I said, kind of the irony with, with so much of this is that if these platforms acted consistently and transparently and, you know, have ex had exercised their community moderation policies, you know, from the beginning, as opposed to taking this kinds of hands-off, do-nothing approach, you know, this, like, let as much speech on our platforms go as possible without really policing it or or, or taking into um, account the harmful effects of, of, of some kinds of hate speech and taking action to curb that from the outset and being transparent about how they curb that, then it wouldn't look like, you know, as Jones is saying, the, the left-wing internet companies are trying to censor me. It would look like they're simply applying their rules in a methodological way. But there's really no method methodology to this because they've had the rules for so long and they're only ap applying it now. It's impossible to have objective rules that will tell you what to do oh, in every case. it's very difficult, of, yes. Yeah, of, of, you know, at what point does someone's speech cross the line from being political opinion to being harassment or to being bullying or to being hate speech. This is not an easy question. I mean, the Supreme Court wrestles with these questions, right? It's, it's, it's um, not at least easy. similar or analogous yeah. questions. But I will say, though, you know, putting him under the banner of a news network, giving him a verified account after we know that the claim that the Sandy Hook was a hoax has caused so much harm to those families and continues to haunt them, right? And people have been reporting on this for so long as a problem and them continuously deciding not to take action. I think that there are some more clear-cut cases and Jones happens to be one of them and he's become so popular over the years uh, because he, like nobody's kicked him off for saying this stuff. They just let him keep going. I agree this is a gray area and I want uh, these companies to to tread lightly. I, I don't necessarily trust Facebook with doing much of anything, much less deciding who's right or wrong on the internet. But when there is real world harm being caused, I, I think that we need to see some consistency of action here. Uh, this is an issue that is not going away anytime soon. It's particularly because this weekend, the Unite the Right 2 rally will be happening in Washington, D.C. That's uh, a big uh, sequel to the white supremacist rally 
that occurred last year in Charlottesville that led to a woman's death. Uh, we'll see what happens this year, but I fear that a lot of the anger that has been stirred up over the free speech concerns and the deplatforming of Alex Jones might spill into that rally. Uh, and we'll see if these things actually converge. Who knows? I wanted to note quickly that Twitter is the one major social media platform in, at least in the U.S., where Jones still has a presence, so all his followers are flocking there and following him there. And we did ask uh, Vijay Gaddy, the Twitter, the Twitter executive who, who makes these decisions for them, um, why Jones is still allowed on the platform. She gave an answer that, you know, it was sort of what we hear from what we were hearing from Facebook's executives before they changed their mind, which is basically, look, we don't want to be in the business of deciding who's right and wrong. We think that Twitter has a role to play in debunking uh, stuff that that he says. Um, it's a you know, it's a public forum, um, and it's a place where you can bring ugly views into the light and and work through them. But I wouldn't be shocked actually to see Twitter reverse itself in the coming weeks and and ban Jones as well. I mean, it's it's these policies are so open to interpretation, uh, whether you whether you view something as just false information, which doesn't get you banned, or whether you view it as harassment or bullying or hate speech, which does get you banned. And I think the, the pressure eventually will fall on Twitter and they might follow suit. And, you know, Apple still, uh, as does Google, still host uh, Jones's InfoWars app in their app store. But, you know, it's not just uh, Alex Jones in tech news this week. Uh, there was also a report that came out Friday about Wells Fargo and a computer glitch that led to some devastation. Yeah, at least Wells Fargo is blaming a computer glitch. And what they've said is that in a regulatory filing on Friday, they acknowledged that they had mistakenly withheld loan modifications. That is, they, they refused to adjust or modify the terms of their mortgage with about 625 customers between the years of 2010 and 2015. As a result of those mistakes, 400 customers had their homes foreclosed it's upon devastating. by the bank due to what they say is a computer glitch. And yeah, that's that's awful. And they, they say, look, we're very sorry. We're, uh, we're going to try to uh, make things right for these families and make things better. I don't think there's any way they can do that realistically. Um, and then you have critics of, the, of these banks, one in particular, David Diane of, of The Intercept is somebody who's been following the, the misdeeds and shenanigans of banks in the finance industry for years and years. He's saying he doesn't buy it. You know, they, they, he says when they say it's a computer glitch, look, all the incentives here were, were aligned for them to not take proper care in helping these people get their terms adjusted as they were, as I think they were required to do under law at the time. Um, And so he just, he isn't buying it that it was computer glitch. Whether it is or isn't, it's not, it's going to come as cold comfort to anybody who lost their homes uh, because of the screw up. I think the issue, I was reading Aaron Mack's piece in Slate uh, where he was summarizing the issue. And I think it was that they had miscalculated the attorney's fees on some loans. And that as a result, that had led people to look like they were ineligible when they actually should have been eligible to get the terms revised. And we've seen time and time again, really, banks uh, kind of hide behind the complexity of their systems to justify the, frankly, injustices. That that they perpetuate. Um, you know that Wells Fargo did say that they set aside eight million to, to to try to remedy this. I did a little math: eight million divided by four hundred. That's twenty thousand each. Not a lot when we're talking about losing your home that you've put your entire wealth into. Right, and and of course for Wells Fargo, you've you've if you watch TV, you've probably seen the ads. They're in the midst of this huge campaign to apologize uh, for the scandal that the scandals that they already had, including the one where they had employees who were making up credit card numbers and accounts to boost their sales metrics, um, and the, the DOJ uh, had come down on them for that already. So this just 
this just adds to, I mean, it was just clearly a, a, a totally broken culture there where everything was driven by metrics and, uh, and they were willing to fudge stuff or, or screw people over, or even take away people's homes to meet those. And as always, we like to follow the news where uh, companies try to hide behind the, uh, the complexities of their software or where they say their software is a black box or, you know, they, they say that the algorithm does it. It wasn't me. You know, pretty soon I think that uh, the algorithm made me do it is going to be the new dog ate my homework. And it's 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 just something that we need to watch very closely because these excuses often ring hollow when we look into them. Yeah, I love that. I, I love that point. I mean, you might ask, ask why are we talking about Wells Fargo on a tech show? But I, I think it is the same. It is an analogous issue. Um, Antonio Garcia Martinez in Wired called it the algorithmic pass, that phenomenon you're describing of where companies get a pass if they say, oh, it was the algorithm's fault or it was a computer glitch. And that's why we did this thing that hurt people and helped our profits. And it's, it's just, it's like, it's not flying anymore. I think that's a good thing. Uh, but it also just reminded me of the, of the ways in which the machinery of, of capitalism, the machinery of corporations, you know, people can get caught in it and, and ground up and spit out. And there's not necessarily a person that you can blame or point to. And it reminded me of, uh, it reminded me of the Grapes of Wrath, right, right, where the bank takes away their farm. And, you know, they, there's no one, there's no person that, that can stand up and say, this was my decision to take away your farm. The bank itself is like this zombie that has to act in the interest of profits at all times, and there's just no stopping it. And so it was, it's this faceless uh, entity that took away your farm. We're seeing that now, uh, kind of faceless entity being uh, replaced by software and algorithms. And it's uh, something that is incredibly troubling because, again, we're talking about people's homes, right, where people live, their housing, their their shelter, where their families grow up, where they're able to afford a future. We will follow these stories very closely uh, and, and look for other instances where this happens and continue to report on it because they should not be swept under the rug in the rush of other news. I, I do expect more because uh, everybody's moving toward machine learning software now, and that's even more opaque. And so there will be algorithms that we don't even know. We don't even know how they work and why they denied you a loan or why they raised your insurance rates. a quick break. When we come back, we'll have our interview with Will Summer, tech and internet reporter for The Daily Beast. is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank, USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. 
Our guest today is Will Summer. He's a tech reporter for The Daily Beast. He previously worked as a campaign editor at The Hill and as a political columnist for Washington City Paper. And if you want to understand right-wing media ethos, Will Summer will break it down for you every week in his newsletter, Right Richter. And really, in my opinion, Will is the leading thinker uh, to kind of help us wrap our heads around the fringe right internet culture that is now expanding into the mainstream. Will, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. So I actually want to start with some definitions here because I know a lot of our listeners, this is kind of their tech digest for the week. Can you help us understand what is Q and who are the Q Anon followers? Yeah, okay, absolutely. Uh, strap in, folks. So uh, <laughs> the, <laughs> sure. So in late October of last year, uh, this person dubbing themselves Q began posting uh, anonymous messages on 4chan and then later migrated to 8chan, which is a similar forum. Uh, and these are very like cryptic clues. They started out much more concrete. They were like, Hillary's going to be arrested next week. And that, that didn't happen. But so they become vaguer. And uh, so sort of around the, these clues, this whole culture, and it, it's mostly on the right of interpreting these clues has jumped up and come up uh, in the GOP. And people have kind of built this world where they believe that Q is either Trump or someone in the Trump administration offering clues to Trump supporters about how the world really is. And and this is like a very outlandish world where Trump is engaged in battle against these like kind of globalist pedophile cults, essentially. Right. And uh, and, and Q, just to be clear, uh, is continuing to build on this theory, right? So this is an acting, uh, active kind of living conspiracy theory. It's not one where, uh, you know, we believe something happened in the past and they're trying to uncover it. This is one that's still unfolding, right? Right. Yeah. So every, you know, maybe once or twice a day, you get a, a Q post that's very, uh, you know, very vague. And sometimes they build off current events, like they'll say, oh, the California wildfires were, uh, you know, started by the California government. It's a false flag, stuff like that. Right. And so that then the, the extension of that is that the uh, federal government should not give California money to help manage the wildfires, I suppose. Uh, can you help us understand exactly, just to continue to, to, to set, lay the groundwork here, how did we get from Pizzagate to Q? Uh, you know, Pizzagate, for those who are not uh, <laughs> aware or who are blissfully unaware, let me say, uh, was the uh, conspiracy theory that really boiled over in 2016 before the election, uh, that Hillary Clinton was somehow involved in a pedophile ring that led to a gentleman walking into a D.C. Pizza- pizzeria with a loaded rifle before the election? Sure. So in, in many ways, uh, QAnon is sort of like the next stage on from Pizzagate. Uh, I think in the 2016 election, we discovered that uh, a lot of a surprising amount of the population is willing to believe just things that are like just truly bizarre uh, and could never actually happen. And so uh, in the case of Pizzagate, uh, as you mentioned, uh, a Democratic pedophile ring out of a pizzeria uh, ended in this kind of armed incident. Uh, and in the case of QAnon, QAnon is sort of like a, a mega conspiracy theory that combines uh, all the conspiracy theories of the past. And so, for example, Pizzagate is prominent in QAnon. Uh, so is the idea that Hillary Clinton murdered Democratic National Committee staffer Seth Rich. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you know, and, and 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 kind of all these old tropes have been have been combined uh, into one big theory. All right. So this actually sounds kind of fun to like, in a way, to follow the day's politics under the assumption that there is a there are these hidden clues to this crazy conspiracy that's really going on. 
Well, yeah, I mean, you know, I think that's part of the appeal of QAnon is that it's much more exciting than actual world. You know, uh, you know, if, if you're a Trump supporter and you thought Trump Trump was going to solve all these problems and he's going to throw the Democrats in jail and all this, and then you know he gets in and he does some tax cuts and uh, that's pretty much it. It's like, oh, geez, maybe I'll escape to this fantasy world. Um, and you know, when people do interviews with QAnon supporters, I think that. That kind of belief that it, it, it's almost like that show early edition, right? Where they're like, <laughs> they know the news before it's going to happen. And so that kind of like, uh, that feeling of sort of like, ho ho, Q told us about that. Uh, I, I, I do think that is, a, that is a part of it. So what I was wondering is how many of, of these folks who are following this theory do you think are really truly believing all, the, all these crazy ideas or really believe that there is some shadowy figure orchestrating everything and how many are just kind of along for the ride like they you know maybe they like Trump uh, but they don't necessarily go in for all of it but it's like a fun game to them it's hard to tell I think uh, the the amount of people who who do believe it is it, I, I think that's a substantial portion of it I mean I think especially since QAnon kind of broke into the mainstream over the past week uh, I think we've seen kind of an increase in people saying they believe in QAnon I think to sort of trigger liberals uh, and right. say more of like the Q movement as like a broader like pro-Trump thing and not like this bizarre like internet scavenger hunt. But at the same time, I, I do think there's a lot of people who are like very, very deeply invested in this and this idea that, uh, you know, this is all going to kind of come to a big climax and, and Trump's going to triumph. How much does it really matter that there are people out there who b- believe these crazy things? Like I, one of the theories, I guess, had to do with Robert Mueller uh, either being, I forget whether it was him being a pedophile or him busting all the pedophiles who are the, the liberals um, with Trump's help. Orchestrating uh, a pedophile ring in some way. Sure, yeah. So, so like, um, it, it can also be difficult to tell what is, per se, a QAnon belief just because the clues are often so vague. And then if they are proven to be false, uh, the people then say, like, Q will come out and say, like, you guys got it all wrong, <laughs> you know. And so uh, in this case, one of the core tenets of QAnon is that Mueller is, in fact, working with Trump to investigate Hillary Clinton. Uh, And then so, you know, Alex Jones, who has sort of been exiled from QAnon world, has now been, you know, pushing this idea that Mueller is, in fact, uh, sort of protecting uh, a pedophile cabal. Okay, thank you so much for clearing up whether whether Mueller is protecting or prosecuting the pedophiles. But my my question, I guess, like just on a broad level, like why does it matter? How much does it matter that there is a surprising segment of the population that will believe these crazy things? I mean, you you can see one clear example in Pizzagate where the guy walked into the pizza shop with a gun. I mean, there's a conspiracy theory leading to potential real world violence or harm. But in terms of the politics and 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 like the the how our nation gets governed, does it matter that these conspiracy theories are floating around and are popular. Sure. So, so I think there's there's kind of two uh, two reasons this matters. I would say the short term is indeed because of a Pizzagate style incident uh, in June. We saw a fellow in a like an improvised armored truck uh, with some guns shut down a bridge near the Hoover Dam and kind of demand that QAnon be proven true. Uh, you know, he's he, he so so you have already an instance of of QAnon kind of provoking this like armed confrontation. Uh, you know, in, in the long term, I think it's just bad news for politics for a not insignificant, I think, uh, segment of the population to become so divorced from reality. I mean, you know, eventually the Democrats are going to win back a House of Congress, uh, for example, and then these people are going to be left thinking 
it was a deep state plot. And then, you know, what, what does that do to a country if you have people uh, just who are, who are not processing what's actually going on? So, you know, uh, I kind of want to push back on uh, a framing of, of, of my co-host Will's question here. He kept calling these people crazy. And I, I've noticed that in a lot of uh, reporting across uh, newspapers and online sites, calling these people crazy. And I'm curious if that is actually working to harden their beliefs, right? I mean, there must be some reason or some way we can understand why they are attracted to these theories without perhaps calling them crazy. Because I I worry that when we demonize the people who believe in this for whatever reason they do, uh, they can actually go back and say, oh, they're calling us crazy. Well, we don't believe in the liberal biased media anyway. And it just kind of works to further divisions. I think it's kind of similar, like, uh, you know, when Hillary Clinton uh, called Trump supporters deplorables. Right. They they, they embrace that. Um, I mean, I I think what's interesting about QAnon is that, like, these are not raving lunatics for the most part. I mean, these are people who are like normal people, but they also just believe in this really off the wall thing. So, you know, you see these interviews with QAnon people and they just talk about it like it's like a fact of life. You know, it's just like, well, you know, I go to my job and I go home and whatever and play with my kids. Uh, And then I'm quite eager to check up on, uh, you know, what this deep state whistleblower has been telling me. So it it, it is sort of wormed its way into people's brains in, in, in a very unusual way. And why do you think people are drawn to this? What What do you think is the a- attraction to this? And is there something that's happening in our political moment that makes people more susceptible or vulnerable to these types of unsubstantiated winding theories in your mind? Sure. I think there's a lot of things going on. Um, I, I think the, the Internet obviously has made it really easy for people who might be prone to believe something very crazy uh, to find one another. Uh, I think, you know, it's kind of a it's a tumultuous time in politics in the world. And and if, if you can blame it on kind of this global cabal, like, for example, one of the big popular QAnon videos sort of posits that essentially all wars and strife and famine and whatever are the fault of, you know, essentially Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama. So, you know, if you say that and you say, well, shoot, we just need to get those guys and everything will be solved. Uh, so, so I think that's appealing. Um, I think from conversations with QAnon people and going to the QAnon rally that was held a couple months ago, uh, I, I think it appeals to people. It has a broad appeal uh, to to a lot of niche interests. Uh, for example, uh, I think a lot of uh, people who's uh, it, it, some QAnon people who who have families with autism uh, have been drawn to it with this idea that you know either it's a vaccine thing or it's like you know some somehow uh, this will all be solved with that. Uh, you know, I saw one fellow who. Said uh, he had cancer, but you know he wasn't too concerned because he he felt this cabal was withholding the cure for cancer, and like fortunately Trump was about to uh, get that whole thing resolved pretty quick. So, so I think there's a lot of reasons, but but, but I think the, the most fundamental reason is it's very fun to follow along with. I mean, you know, uh, there, there's sort of, sort of something new every day that's very dramatic. Right. So it seems like it's kind of this this easy out for whatever people are, are struggling with in some ways because it is just this ever evolving story. One thing I want to mention is that in the reporting on one of the Trump rallies last week in Wilkes Bar, Pennsylvania, uh, the Washington Post said that there were more people wearing QAnon shirts than there were people wearing shirts and with signs for the Republican candidates for governor and senator. So I thought that was just a very interesting observation. So actually, it's funny you say that. QAnon can have kind of an interesting effect on people's political engagement. So, you know, on one hand, it's like, you know, this is the good versus evil. You might think it would really activate people for Trump and the Republicans. But on the other hand, and this is something some Republican activists are concerned about, 
QAnon is like a very uh, laid back political ideology because it suggests that politics essentially is meaningless as long as Trump is in office and fighting these people and that all this stuff is going on so far away from where we can see it that it doesn't really matter who you elect. And so like one of the big QAnon slogans is trust the plan. And the attitude then is very (laughs) – it's sort of like, well, you know – you know, Trump and his buddies in the military have this whole thing handled. I'm just going to sit back and watch the clues roll in. Uh, we've obviously had conspiracy theories in society for a long time. You did mention that the internet has made it easier to fi- for them to find each other. Um, have you looked at all at sort of like the historical context? And and I mean, we used to have the the national the supermarket tabloids. I guess we still have those. Um, but the, the theories seem similar to what would be in the National Enquirer or the Weekly World News. Is the world today of, of these conspiracy theories? a lot different than it than it has been in the past. I think there's a lot of historical analogs that uh, QAnon kind of incorporates. I mean, the one of the classic ones, of course, is the, uh, like I guess, the 80s or 90s uh, sort of satanic uh, sexual abuse panic. Um, and, and, and that's that's often downplayed by QAnon people. Uh, but that is certainly like a very big part of it, this idea that, uh, you know, all these satanic abuses are going on. Um, you know, I it, I do think I, I think the internet has kind of hyped up this whole thing so much and and made it so easy for a uh, this whole universe of uh, QAnon adjacent uh, conspiracy clubs uh, or you know YouTube communities, Facebook, Twitter, whatever, to uh, to sprout up. All right, so so part of the problem here is that we now have a, a non a not insignificant part of the population who believes that liberals and liberal politicians are these villainous. Uh, pedophiles uh, who are doing awful things um, in secret. But is there a risk in focusing on the on QAnon or Pizzagate that those on the left end up sort of demonizing the right or painting the right with too broad a brush where we think that everybody who votes for Donald Trump also believes that, uh, you know, that, that Barack Obama is is having sex with children in pizza shops or something? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a good point to to point out that that obviously this is not, I would say, a majority opinion in the GOP. Uh, but you know, at the same time, I I think for as bizarre as it is, it is uh, it is interesting and uh, maybe telling that uh, about our our current moment and and the Republican Party itself that uh, this has caught on so much. And you know, I I, I think it's also worth noting that uh, of course Trump is maybe the most prominent conspiracy theorist in the world. Uh, you know, after promoting uh, birtherism. So, so so I don't think this is something that. It, as much as I think many GOP establishment people would like to suggest this is some random thing that's brought out of nowhere, I, I think this is a very logical result of uh, the political direction the Republican Party has been headed in. And you had a, a great piece this week about the response from the GOP establishment to the QAnon followers. I do recommend people check that out. It's in the Daily Beast. Uh, my question is, a, a lot of the themes that are emerging from Q or the, the QAnon followers, uh, I feel like I've heard from people in the Trump administration. As you said, Trump is a known conspiracy theorist. The the deep state idea, I believe I, I, I heard from Bannon at some point. Uh, is there any sense that this could actually be helping Trump or, or, or helping the GOP in any way? Or does it actually seem harmful overall? Oh, I, I think it could absolutely be good for them. I mean, when, when you have these people who are essentially viewing Trump as, as an almost messianic figure, uh, you know, you, you have to figure that, that that's going to kind of push them further into his camp. And it also creates a situation where people are so unmoored from reality that, you know, they're, they're not really going to react in the right way to or, or in a um, – 
in a in a commensurate way with, with with something that happens if it's bad for Trump. You know, they they get pushed to a point where they say, well, that's the deep state at it again. And the thing is, the whole like the whole deep state conspiracy theory that's not just a QAnon thing. You know, it, 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 these are talking points that are repeated every night in primetime Fox News. And so right. QAnon, in a way, is just kind of a, a more hardcore version of this idea that that there's this deep state out to get Trump. All right. So we've been talking about QAnon. We've alluded to Alex Jones. Uh, Of course, this week, one of the big news stories in both the politics and tech world is Alex Jones getting booted off all these platforms, Facebook and YouTube and Spotify and Apple. In your experience reporting on conspiracy theorists and and right-wing media, when something like this happens, what it's called, some people call it deplatforming, when a a figure like Alex Jones gets deplatformed, does that you know, does that kill him or does it make him stronger? <laughs> sure. So Alex Jones is kind of a unique case because uh, in the past when we've seen deplatforming, usually it's someone who's who's kind of like an individual or uh, – or has a very small media operation. Now, Infowars, like you, you know, no one's going to fire Alex Jones from Infowars, and so he still has his, his website and he still has a staff and, and what have you. On the other hand, uh, you know, going based on how people have been deplatformed previously, uh, my mind springs to uh, Milo Yiannopoulos getting kicked off Twitter. Uh, it, it, it I, I do think it has a big effect. And in the case of Infowars, uh, I think them getting kicked off of YouTube in particular and thus no longer showing up in the algorithmic results uh, when people search for something, I, I think will have a big impact on uh, on how they expand their audience. Right. I mean, if you're harder to find, then it's harder for your conspiratorial <laughs> philosophies and, and, and takes on the news to, to spread. That's going to do it for today. Will, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. All right, we'll have one last break and then don't close my tabs. Some of the most interesting stories we saw online this week. All right, it's time again for Don't Close My Tabs. April, what tab could you not close this week? Okay, my tab this week is a bit of good news on top of some bad news. It's a story in the New York Times that came out yesterday. Phone calls from New York City jails will soon be free. It is about the ongoing battle to uh, kind of unhinge uh, the phone call systems in jails from uh, these corporations that charge just a tremendous amount of money to people who are trying to reach their families in New York now, in the city of New York. Uh, Those calls will be free, but it has been a booming industry. Uh, The New York Times reports... The city's been collecting about $5 million per year from calls made from incarcerated people and their families. You know, these calls uh, can cost, you know, $20 for 30 minutes, depending on the uh, pricing structure of the calls throughout the country. God, what a racket. I huh? mean, so, and you have you have a kid, Will, so you, you could understand that. If, imagine if you could only talk to your kid once a week, you know, or, or maybe you want to talk to them three times a week. That could be $60 for three calls, and each call is only 30 minutes. It's very hard to maintain a relationship with a family, especially if you're a single parent, if you're making minimum wage, if you just don't have a lot of savings. This really adds up. Families spend thousands a year, you know, just trying to keep in touch and keep some semblance of family together with uh, folks who are incarcerated. And uh, many of these people are, uh, you know, incarcerated pretrial and so um, haven't been fully charged yet and are being charged for calls uh, and this has just been a debate that's been happening for a long time. Right. And the other side here is from the president of the Correction Officers Union. And the story said, 
quote, now the gangs will definitely be able to continue to run their operations from inside the jails. So, so the, the, they're raising the specter of, look, now you have inmates communicating with other gang members, running things from, from inside prison. That, I, don't, I don't really buy that because, I mean, they could already talk to people. They just, they just were, had to pay a bunch of money for it. And if you're, you know, if you're running a gang, uh, presumably that's something where you could justify the expense. might be harder to justify the expense to your family if you're taking away the money that they need to live just in order to talk to them on a regular basis. Exactly. And, you know, there is research that shows people who are able to maintain contact with their loved ones are less likely to uh, go back into jail after they get out. So uh, there are a lot of reasons for making sure that people who are in the throes of the criminal justice system are able to maintain the relationships with their families. Um, I thought this was an important story. I hope people read it. And I hope, like I said, that New York City sets a precedent for the rest of the country. Well, what was your tab this week? All right. My tab is a really long tab. And I have to admit that it is actually still open. I have not been able to close my tab. It is from the New York Times. as from the New York Times Magazine uh, last week. It is called Losing Earth, The Decade We Almost Stopped Climate Change. It's by Nathaniel Rich. And it tells a long story uh, starting in the 1970s of how uh, we actually had most of the basics of climate science uh, down. We, we, uh, we, scientists understood the problem as early as the late 1970s. Um, and in fact, there was a consensus among policy elites that something had to be done. We were moving toward a global treaty that would have had real teeth. Um, it was not yet a partisan issue. It was uh, both Republicans and Democrats, at least in Rich's telling, agreed that this was a problem and that it wasn't a, it wasn't a Republicans versus Democrats thing. It was like, let's all band together as humanity and solve this, this big problem. But we didn't do it. And so he, he tries to advance a, a theory of why we didn't do it. He, he blames humanity. Like he says it was Does us. He, it yeah. wasn't. This is like a, a science communication story, right? This is like how, how we understand science a bit. Yeah, yeah. That, that basically just we didn't we, we all agreed it was a problem, but we couldn't bring ourselves to care. The public couldn't bring itself to care enough to take the steps to make the trade-offs that would have been needed. And that was a time before emissions had spiraled as they have in the past 20, you know, 20 or 30 years when making a change actually could have made a huge difference. Today, even if we do make big changes to our emissions, warming is already has already happened, will already continue to happen. Um, but but that was a chance. And he describes it as this tragedy, this missed opportunity that, that humanity will look back on uh, with regret as we, you know, are, are all overcome by wildfires and flooding and, and famine and whatever else. Um, so it's a really interesting story. It, it, it reads well as a, as a tragedy. This is Rich, I believe, is a novelist, actually. Um, but it's gotten some pushback from people who follow the climate story and climate policy carefully from journalists like Robinson Meyer at The Atlantic. Um, and they've said, look, this lets, this lets off the hook the Republicans and the industry interests who really did uh, take an opposing stance toward, toward action on climate change from early on. They weren't as entrenched as they are today. Um, I know some yeah. of the fossil fuel companies. Yeah, go ahead. I'm always remiss to put the onus on readers or the public uh, or the people. I think that we're kind of spoon-fed information, and then we act, you know, with the information that we have. Uh, and there was a massive campaign in the 80s to make sure that information about climate change did not get out, right? I mean, didn't didn't Exxon lie for for years about the effects of uh, of, of emissions and and what have you? I'm, I'm probably like misremembering all of these stories, but I feel like time and time again, I hear of you know oil companies 
having concentrated campaigns to make sure that the American public is deeply misinformed about the effects of their industry. And so it's very hard for me to accept that this is like our fault. Right, right. And I mean, I think there is some truth to what Rich is saying based on, on what I've read and, and reported oh, I'm in the sure past. I'm sure there's a lot I'm of truth expert. in it, yeah. But <laughs> the, the big oil companies at first, I mean, they were some of the ones sounding the alarm very early on, and they contributed to research about climate change. And, and uh, companies like Royal Dutch Shell were planning for a future in which oil, you know, we, we would have to get off of oil. But yeah, but you're right. I think by the by the mid-80s, and this is the part that, that critics accuse Rich of underplaying in the time story, by the mid-80s, the industry was starting to to strategize and game plan. How do we keep this from affecting our short-term profits and our bottom line? And I do think there was some ma- manipulation of the public involved, for sure. Oh, well, I mean, look at like VW. Uh, you know, I know they're not an oil company, but them hiding the their emissions, you know, failures of their vehicles in the in the software. I mean, this is like a this is a time tested argument or like a strategy of uh, of of people who have contributed to climate change or of corporate actors who have contributed to kind of our deteriorating planet. Uh, I will also say that, yes, uh, the oil companies did pioneer a lot of the early research about the harms of their products, but they were doing this while simultaneously trying to drill and extract as much oil as possible. Well, that does it for our show this week. You can get updates about what's coming up next by following us on Twitter at IfThenPod. You can also email us at ifthen at slate.com. Send us your tech questions, show and guest suggestions, or just say hi. And you can follow me and Will on Twitter as well. I'm at April Laser, and Will is at Will Remus. Thanks again to our guest, Will Summer. You can find his work at thedailybeast.com and on Twitter at Will Summer. That's W-I-L-L-S-O-M-M-E-R. He's a great follow, highly recommended. And thanks to everyone who has left us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen. Wherever you listen, please leave, leave us a review. Say we're awesome if you think so. If you don't think so, don't say anything. We really appreciate your time. If Then is a production of Slate and Future Tense, the partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. Our producer this week is Laura Flynn. The great Laura Flynn. And thanks to Robert Kirby at Fantasy Studios in Berkeley. Thanks to Kyle Hickey at Occupy Studio in Newark, Delaware. And a major, massive, super thanks to Danielle Hewitt at Slate Studios in D.C., who is helping to facilitate Will Summer, our guest today. We'll see you next week.